You're listening to Beck and Calling, featuring Whitworth University President Beck A. Taylor. In each episode, Beck interviews influential thinkers, authors, artists, and other leaders who are living out their callings in life and making the world a better place. Well, it's my great pleasure today to welcome Dr. Jerry Sitzer to the Beck and Calling podcast. Many in our listening audience, of course, will know Jerry. Since 1989, Jerry has taught theology here at Whitworth. Thousands of students have benefited from his masterful and engaging teaching, as well as his warm and friendly nature. Jerry's students, whether in his popular courses on the history of Christianity or on his regular Jan term retreat to Tall Timber, or simply over a cup of coffee in the hub, know Jerry Sitzer as a friend and as a mentor. He has been named a most influential professor at Whitworth many times by graduating seniors. Jerry's scholarship and writing specializes in the history of Christianity, Christian spirituality, and religion in American public life. He is also an eloquent churchman, often preaching and teaching at university campuses and at churches around the country and around the world. As co-founder of Whitworth's Office of Church Engagement, Jerry is actively involved in teaching and mentoring church leaders and pastors and congregations. He is also the prolific and award-winning author that so many of us know, authoring more than, uh, or nine books in fact, including A Grace Disguised, The Will of God as a Way of Life, Water from a Deep Well, and his most recent book, which will be the topic of our conversation today, Resilient Faith, How the Early Christian Third Way Changed the World. Every college or university has its faculty hall of famers. At Whitworth University, he is surely one of ours. Welcome, Jerry. I'm so glad that you're with us today. Thanks, Beck. Appreciate the invitation. Well, before we get into the content of your newest book, you've announced recently that this will be your last year teaching undergraduates here at Whitworth. How are you looking forward to spending your time after you step step away from the classroom? Well, first and foremost, I almost have, or I have almost eight grandchildren, uh, seven of whom are boys, and they're all very young. Um, four out of our five kids have moved back to Spokane. I have one son still in, still in Seattle. So it's going to be a lot of time with grandkids and children. I have some writing projects that I'll be working on for the next many years. And then I spend a lot of time with alums and with pastors in town, and not just in town, but across the Pacific Northwest. So all that together adds up to a lot of time. <laughs> Your retirement will look busier than most of our regular working lives. Well, I think. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but you know, I don't really believe in retirement. I think you just uh, move, you transition to a different kind of calling in life. Yeah. And fortunately for me, uh, there's some continuity between what I have been doing and what I hope to do in the future. Wonderful. Well, we're very grateful to have you remain a part of the Whitworth community, even after you finish your teaching My privilege. Your new book, Resilient Faith, is getting a lot of attention in the days and weeks after its publication. I'm curious, for whom did you write this book? Well, it goes back to my sense of calling. I view myself as a bridge between two worlds, the world of the academy and the world of the church. Um, our reward system in the academy is pretty much, or pretty much encourages faculty just to speak to their own kind. Um, and I want to be honoring of the learnedness and the high standards that the academic enterprise upholds, but I want to turn that in the direction of the larger public 
and, uh, and, and the church. So I see myself as a bridge between those two worlds. So I wrote it for the academy. I'm sure it will be used, I hope it will be used anyway in college and seminary classrooms. But I also want this book to be read by educated lay people that want, uh, I, I'm hoping that the resource of early Christianity is gonna help them think about what it means to be church in our contemporary setting. So in the book, you describe Western Christianity, particularly here in the United States, as entering into what you call a post-Christendom period. What do you mean by that? Well, I don't mean post-Christian. American particulars is uh, still uh, largely shaped by Christianity. Recent polls indicate about 70% of people identify as Christian, although it's interesting to observe that's down from 84% just 40 years ago, which is a pretty precipitous drop in a short period of time. But compared to Europe, we're still highly Christian in America. Uh, I prefer instead post-Christendom because it talks about the place of cultural privilege and power that Christianity has enjoyed for so many uh, centuries in the Western world and even in the United States. And I see that as trailing off pretty significantly. Uh, many spheres of life in America are not shaped so much by a Christian worldview as used to be the case, our industry being one of them, uh, higher education. So I want us to think about what it means to be uh, a Christian church and Christian people in an environment that is becoming increasingly post-Christendom. And there are some mistakes we can make. One is simply to try to hold on with our claws mm. to uh, that kind of post or that Christendom perspective and to think that we can somehow reclaim cultural privilege and power. Uh, we're trying to do that now, and I don't think very successfully, and I think the price to be paid is too high if we simply assert power and try to pass laws and do other things that are going to kind of wrest control and allow us to continue in that privileged position that uh, we've largely lost. I want to add back that Christianity has been a profoundly adaptive faith around the world. Yeah. Everywhere you go, no matter what the system of government is, no matter what the system of economics is, you'll find a Christian church and often find it thriving. It seems, in fact, to do best when it is not in holding a position of favor and privilege in the culture. There's a church in Russia, there's a church in China, there's a church in India, there's a church in the Middle East. Everywhere you look, Christianity has figured out how to take root and grow. And so for us to think we've got to be Western, we have to be capitalist, we have to be a democracy in order to survive is simply not true. Uh, so I think we need to learn to be as adaptive as Christians around the world have uh, learned to be. So in this post-Christendom era, as you call it, I'm hearing from you that perhaps those of us as part of the church don't need to be afraid of what's coming. Should we be fearful of living in this post-Christendom world? Uh, no, not only should we not be fearful, we should be hopeful and creative. I think we're gonna see new opportunities emerge that are gonna be extraordinary to us. Let me give you an example. In the year 40, if you had been a Christian, you'd be living in Jerusalem, you'd be Jewish, you'd be going visiting the temple, uh, you'd be learning in a synagogue, you'd be following kosher laws and lots of things as, as a Christian. And you'd think that this was going to continue, that the trajectory was set for hundreds of years until Jesus returned. It would have been inconceivable for you to think 
that your major language 100 years later would be Greek or Latin, uh, that you would be Gentile, that you would never think of going to the temple because it had been destroyed, that you wouldn't be visiting synagogues, that you'd be meeting in house churches, that you'd be following a faith that had absolute continuity with that early, early Christian period and yet had adapted to a very different set of cultural circumstances. Case study right there. Yeah. So the title of your book is Resilient Faith. And so for those Christians who are feeling less than resilient or beleaguered in this post kind of Christendom area, um, you remind us in the book that the church has gone through many changes throughout the millennia. Um, In this period of time where uh, Christianity may have lost its cultural dominance, as you say, um, in the book, you turn our gaze back to the early church. You've already mentioned yeah. uh, the first century, for example, mm-hmm. after Christ's death and resurrection. You think that there are some answers in that early church history, don't you? I do. Obviously, we have to adapt them to a different set of cultural circumstances, namely ours. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between being pre-Christendom and post-Christendom, mm-hmm. to say the least. They were defining the faith we're having to live with a faith that's been wrongly defined with a lot of nominalism and other things. Mm. But consider this, Beck. A movement is born around the year 30 to 40 AD with a handful of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, and it established a trajectory that continued to grow unevenly, obviously, Mm. over a 275-year period of time outside Rome's favor. Rome was Um, curious at best Mm -hmm. and absolutely hostile at worst, but never favoring Christianity. And in that 275-year period of time, it established all its major doctrines, all its major institutions, all its major practices, grew to be speaking in several language groups, uh, all independently of any kind of state privilege and power and position. That movement has something to teach us. By the eve of the last great persecution of Christianity under Diocletian, and by far the worst persecution, Christianity had grown from about 4,000 people to about 5 million people without church buildings, without the internet, without any advertising campaigns, without all the things that we consider essential cultural props to to the survival of Christianity in our culture. I want to learn from them. (laughs) I have learned from them. So um, in the title of your book, and certainly in the content of its pages, you talk about this third way, Mm -hmm. this third way that Christians followed as the church found its footing, as you've just described. What is that third way? Well, I borrow the phrase from a second century document written by an unknown Christian apologist, the first apologetic work we have. Uh, to a Roman official by the name of Diognetus. And the author of that document mentions third race or third way, I use way instead, um, as a a phrase that Diognetus was familiar with. And um, what he's doing is he's presenting a third alternative that was brand new in the Roman world. The first way was the Roman way, pluralism, transactional religion, the ubiquity of religion in public life everywhere you turn, temples, monuments, shrines, festivals, feasts, and so on, sacrificial system. Uh, That was the, I call it the uh, accommodationist way. Mm. 
Um, Rome had a, a tremendous capacity for absorbing new religions into itself under the condition that Rome would always be primary. The second way was the Jewish way. I call it the more isolationist way. Jews were really respected in the Roman world. Uh, they were actually given some benefits in the Roman world that were not given to other religious groups. But Jews were so clearly identifiable. And when you can identify somebody, you can manage them better. Like uh, a team, uh, opposing team wearing a jersey or something like that, fans. Uh, they followed kosher laws. Uh, they lived in more isolated communities and so on and so forth. And then there's this Christian movement, the third way. Well, they looked like everybody else. They ate the same food, spoke the same language, shopped in the same marketplaces, lived in the same neighborhoods. And yet, in their belief system and in their way of life, they were utterly unique. So unique that Rome simply didn't know how to classify them. And they were able to manage, maintain that sense of difference, that uniqueness, over such a long period of time and under very inhospitable circumstances. The third way, they immersed themselves in the culture, but they were able to maintain the distinctiveness of their own way of life and belief system against all odds. How would, it, how would somebody living in the first century have noticed or identified somebody living that third way? What are some of the characteristics? All right, so let's say I've got a stall in a marketplace, the Agora. You shopped every day in the uh, ancient urban world of, of Rome, the empire. And let's just say you're observer, a follower of traditional religion. And you see me, and the first thing you notice is that uh, I have my wife with me, and I appear to be kind to her and faithful to her. I have three daughters. This is shocking to you, because no one wants three daughters in the ancient world. You want to have boys. You don't want to have girls. And I didn't put out one or two of my girls to exposure. You would notice that I don't have any household kill gods. Kill them, kill them, basically, right. That's what correct. you're saying. Yes, yeah. infanticide mm -hmm. of some kind. Um, you would notice that I didn't have any gods or goddesses. Um, you would notice that I uh, observe uh, moments of prayer three or five times a day. Mm. My way of life would just be curious to you. So you'd shop, and you'd get to know me, and I'd finally invite you to my house for dinner. Mm. You'd notice that we pray over meals. We don't offer any sacrifices to household gods and goddesses. We don't attend temples. We don't visit shrines. And we talk about a real relationship with God that we know through Jesus Christ. Well, then you find out about Jesus and you think how unworthy this character would be of divine status. I mean, he's born in a stable in, Jeru in Bethlehem. He's crucified on a cross on Golgotha in Jerusalem. I mean, there's nothing about him that would be worthy of divine status and I worship this Jesus. Well, you become so curious about the way I treat my neighbors, the way I raise my children, uh, the, the kind of generosity I demonstrate, the gratitude of my life, that you would gradually move ever so slowly into the Christian fold. Eventually, you'd sign up to become a catechumen. You'd go through a two to three year training program and then go through the final rites of initiation, become a member of a church and a follower of Jesus. So what you're saying is that uh, the early Christians of the day would have been known by their behavior, by the way they lived. 
by the way they interacted with others. That's is, exactly right. Is there an indictment there in well, some way? Well, of course there is. <laughs> when, when, when this unknown author writes his uh, defense of Christianity, he actually does not begin with Christian belief. He begins with Christian behavior under the assumption that Diognetus has actually observed this, that it's a, critical, it's a credible means of making his argument for Christianity. After he describes Christian behavior, how good they are to uh, outsiders, for example, how they take care of widows and orphans, you know, all the stuff you've heard of before, then he says the reason why they live this way is because they believe a certain way, and he would describe a Christian belief system. So behavior led the way when it came to an argument for Christianity. Of course, we wouldn't be able to do that today, at least not in the Western world. You've mentioned the catechumenate already. In fact, this book started out as essentially a series of lectures on the catechumenate, but obviously changed direction. But how important was the catechumenate for the early Christian church, and what can we learn from it today? Well, it was um, a, a very important, utterly central uh, process by which to move people from traditional religion into the Christian fold. I mean, you have to realize the gap between those two was, mm. uh, was enormous. It was like the Grand Canyon, not a little ravine you could jump over. Uh, I mean, there, there weren't former Methodists or Catholics <laughs> or former Presbyterians back then. People practiced a, a, a form of religion that was very, very different from Christianity. And they knew none of the categories that you and I just assume, and, and most of the American population. Nothing about creation, fall, redemption. They didn't know about Moses. They didn't know about Abraham. They didn't know about Jesus. And they didn't know about this way of life. So what the Christian movement developed by, say, mid-second century is a long on-ramp between traditional religion and Christianity. It took two to three years. There was a formal enrollment process. Not a Sunday afternoon class. No, no, not at all. <laughs> a formal enrollment process. They would actually do uh, an interview to start with. Uh, there'd be a mentor who'd go through the whole thing with you for two to three years. You'd be instructed in the Christian story because you didn't think in terms of story, not redemptive story. And uh, basic Christian doctrines, also a Christian way of life. But you would be taught not only that information, you would be introduced to actually living that way. Mm -hmm. At the end of that period, you go through a final, and this is a scary term to use, scrutiny. And they would ask you, Beck, uh, do you believe in uh, God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit and the Christian story? And of course, you'd say yes to that. But then they'd also say, Beck, have you been visiting widows? Mm -hmm. Do, do you care for orphans? Are you bringing food to people in prison? That was as important in this final examination to become a church member as doctrine was. And then you'd go through a fairly elaborate choreography of rites of initiation, and that would culminate in a Eucharist, the giving uh, or tasting the food of the kingdom, milk and honey, and, uh, and becoming a regular church member. That's fascinating. We need that again, something like it, Beck. We can't assume what we used to from the typical Well, and that gets member. to my next question, and that is how did the arrival, the onset of Christendom, impact the way that the church felt like it needed to on-ramp, yeah. to use your term? Did the catechumenate suffer because of Christendom? 
Well, it hung on for a while, but eventually it just disappeared. I mean, entirely disappeared. Confirmation sort of took its place, but that was very hit and miss in the Middle Ages. Wasn't really resurrected till the eve of the Re Reformation. Catholics did that first before uh, Protestants, and they created catechisms and all those important Reformation uh, documents. But you know, the third way simply loses value when it becomes the only way. And over a period of some 600 years, pretty much all of Europe became ostensibly Christian, although mostly nominal. You were baptized into church membership, you took the sacraments, and that was pretty much it. Now, I don't want to give the impression they were all superficial, shallow, insincere Christians. I have no ability to judge that. I do know that the process of training people in the faith, which is what the early Christian movement did, pretty much fell away, except in monasteries. Monasteries really carried the catechumenate into the Middle Ages through what they called the novitiate. So I'm very curious, as we finish up our conversation, what insights you've gleaned through your study of the early church, certainly through the lens of this kind of resiliency that you speak of, the third way, what these things might have to speak to the Christian university of today, and specifically to Whitworth. And I can't help but think of your third way terminology in some sense as being applicable to a place like Whitworth. There are two dominant ways as well in higher education. Right. One is the purely secular, with, which has eschewed all connection to the church and to um, Christian faith, yeah. into integrating the two. Of course, there are some religious institutions that have in some ways jettisoned their academic um, agendas as well, uh, trying to protect some version of that truth. Whitworth in particular uh, kind of rejects both of those models and tries to find, if you will, a third way. Yeah. Um, what can we glean? What, what have you learned about Christian higher education, specifically here at Whitworth, as you've reflected on this material? Well, I think you're right. I like the third way. By the way, the third way is not a middle way. It's not a way of compromise. Mm -hmm. It's a different way mm -hmm. altogether. Mm -hmm. Certainly, we have to be good about our business of educating our students, uh, holding them to the highest standards, uh, reading primary texts and doing good work in the, in the lab and mastering material. We're responsible uh, to our largest society to prepare students for the role they're going to play in that society as lawyers and doctors and teachers and business executives and bankers and lots of other things. So uh, we need to take that seriously, uh, upholding the highest standards we possibly can. Uh, but we are also responsible to form our students. And this, in my mind, is more of a cultural issue. You can't really pass rules to do that. I, for one, would never support, say, requiring chapel again or requiring church attendance on Sundays and having students sign a long pledge. That, that's not really formational. That has to do with what I'd call the Whitworth culture. We need to be smart with who we hire, people who are not only uh, from the best universities and people that have uh, the best education and will be the best teachers, but also people who really love Christ and are committed to the nurturing of students, who are committed to a life of discipleship, 
who embody the very things that I'm describing in this book, at least to some degree. Now, obviously with diversity, that goes without saying, mm -hmm. but who are able at the most organic level to nurture that life in our students of love for Christ and commitment to the gospel and um, uh, a pattern that is disciplined, committed to serve the least of these and to get involved with the mess of society mm -hmm. and to do their best to be representatives of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's a cultural issue. That can't be rules. Yeah, yeah. So you talk about the formation of students. Part of our formational task uh, and charge here at Whitworth is to not only uh, encourage our students to lean into their studies and to become the young women and men that God is having them become, but also to think hard and well and to discern about their their calling in life, the way that God might be summoning them into mm -hmm. the world. You have been a part of those conversations for the last 30 years here mm -hmm. at Whitworth. How can we elevate this notion of calling and vocation in the lives of our students? My question to you, Jerry, is in what ways do you feel content with the ways you're living out your calling in life, particularly now as this chapter at Whitworth comes to a close and you look to uh, opportunities on the horizon? Well, first, a word about calling and our business here at Whitworth. Uh, a lot of people equate calling with career. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say it's more basic, fundamental than that. It has to do with the kind of human being I want to be, and in my case, uh, the kind of Christian man I want to be. And that has to do with the virtues that I exhibit. Mm -hmm. It has to do with my uh, commitment to serve the common good of society, um, the kind of uh, husband I am, the kind of father I am, the kind of friend I am. It has to do with our basic humanity under God. That's the most important thing. Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and everything else will be yours as well. Um, then that gets translated into the kind of work I do in the world, however many times I change my career. That's transferable in all settings. And then I can be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, whatever I happen to be. When it comes to my reflection on my last 30 years, uh, only one word comes to mind. And it comes to mind all the time these days, and that's the word gratitude. Mm -hmm. I have had an amazing 30 years at this institution. Uh, as I've said to you before, uh, I've served under a couple of great presidents. I have a fabulous department. I have so many friends on this campus. I've loved being with students. And I still communicate with many of them. Uh, either through email or through uh, personal coffees and that kind of thing. I've been encouraged to excel both in the classroom and in writing. This has been an amazing place for me. It's nothing but gratitude. Well, we have so much gratitude for you, mm -hmm. Jerry. For well, thank the, you. Uh, many, many blessings that we... Um, we have benefited from from your participation in the Whitworth experiment. I'll say there's a kind of book into all this. When I came here in 89, I came with uh, my wife, Linda, and three kids. She gave birth to number four just a few months after arriving. Two years later, I lost two of them in an accident, as, as many people know. And this place was a great place for me to heal and f get back on my feet. And now I'm remarried, and I have five children, all married, and eight grandchildren, those, those are my bookends. And Whitworth has played a major role in that whole story. Wonderful. Much to be grateful for. Much to be grateful for. Thank you, for. Jerry. 
The title of Jerry's new book is Resilient Faith. It's published by Brazos Press. It's available through any uh, book provider. I encourage you to get it and to read it. It will really encourage you uh, today. Also, to learn more about Jerry and his colleagues in the Office of Church Engagement and all the wonderful things that they're doing there, I'd encourage you to visit www.whitworth.edu OCE for Office of Church Engagement. Jerry, thanks again. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Find all of Beck's podcasts and video interviews at whitworth.edu slash beckandcalling or follow Beck on Twitter at Beck Taylor.